to episode two of the THO podcast. You're here with me, Megan Dashkin, and my co-fellow, Andrew Carpenter, to talk a little bit about Blue Homeland. So in the first episode, we talked about Turkish nationalism, and now we really want to completely switch focus to Eastern Mediterranean maritime security. We're sitting down with another co-fellow, Suha Chubaktuolu. Thank you so much, Suha, for being here. We were absolutely interested in meeting our fellows and learning about their fantastic research on Turkey. And we wanted this opportunity to really sit down with some of them to talk about their specialty within the region. So again, thank you, Suha, for taking the time to chat about your consultant work and the intersection of international affairs, policy, and media. Thank you for having me. Um, and uh, it's a pleasure to be on this uh, meeting with you. Uh, so just to give a brief background of myself, um, I started in a different field in computer science, actually. So I was a software engineer. Um, and then I uh, graduated from Edinburgh University, a degree in MBA, um, and then transitioned into business world and then consulting and also advisory. So my entry and introduction to uh, the world of uh, you know international relations, energy geopolitics, was through my studies um, after having done my master's at uh, the Fletcher School uh, of Law and Diplomacy in the U.S. I started working um, for a number of organizations uh, whilst full-time being employed. Um, I uh, contributed by articles, presentations, and um, you know, panelists and speaker in various events uh, concerning Turkey and its foreign policy in the region. So uh, it's a really exciting field, and I found myself, uh, you know, to be a really uh, fortunate person to have the opportunity to be in this field and to have the opportunity to talk about that THO. Well, that sounds great, Suha. Thank you for giving us that background, and thank you for joining the show and giving us uh, your perspective on these issues. Um, maybe just to start, if you could give us just a current rundown of what the situation is with Turkey in the Eastern Mediterranean and what the issues have been going on there and uh, their engagement with Greece. If you could just give us a rundown, um, you know, what's really going on there right now? So uh, the Eastern Mediterranean uh, is in a tumultuous neighborhood. I mean, it borders one of the most conflict-prone regions of the world, the Middle East, uh, you know, often referred to by ethnic, religious, and sectarian confrontations, as you know. Uh, the region is heightened in importance due to uh, discovery of offshore hydrocarbons, um, in the late, you know, uh, 2000, so 2010 onwards, especially, um, there is a certain sense of disagreement around equal delimitation of maritime zones uh, in, the, in the Mediterranean, mainly between Greece and Turkey, but also between Turkey and uh, the South Cypriot administration, the Greek part. Uh, as you know, the island is de facto divided into two parts. So Turkey recognizes the northern part, and it still has no diplomatic recognition with the southern Greek part. Uh, so the quote-unquote Republic of Cyprus, uh, from Turkey's perspective, um, is not recognized. And so there is this uh, diplomatic, this lack of tools around diplomacy and different uh, at different le levels, so to say, that would that would possibly help. Uh, to resolve the disputes in the region. But it's it's mainly around equitable share of uh, the energy issues, energy fines in the region, and also the maritime zones. So that is an absolutely great rundown. And I know I mentioned this a little bit in the beginning of the episode, but Suha, if you could just talk a little bit about Blue Homeland specifically. We know that it is the 
Turkish strategy in the Eastern Med, but who should really care about this strategy and why and what exactly is it? So Blue Homeland uh, is a maritime doctrine. Um, it was born from uh, within the naval community in early 2000 um, and coined by a former rear admiral. Uh, his name is Jim Gurdenis. He's a retired officer now. Um, and the phrase Blue Homeland at that time um, symbolized Turkey's uh, strategic maritime strategy and some of the opportunities and threats out there that would affect its uh, growing maritime power. Uh, now, fast forward to uh, post-2016, the failed coup attempt, um, the Blue Homeland in the new era represents uh, a much broader scope actually, than simply the maritime domain or the naval strategy, so to say. What it represents is the redirection of Tur- Turkish land-based mentality because Turkey has, uh, you know, traditionally has been a, a land uh, country since, you know, the Ottoman Empire. It did have some maritime components and at the height of its power was a maritime power, but it never became an, like an ocean, uh, ocean-going empire. So uh, what it represents, the Blue Homeland in the new era, is redirection of this land-based mentality in Turkey to open seas and thereby to achieve maritimization of its people in a, in a nutshell. Uh, and as a doctrine, uh, it's, it's a roadmap aimed to protect Turkey's rights and interests in the surrounding seas. That's the Mediterranean, the Aegean Sea and the Black Sea, as well as in the oceans beyond its geographic periphery. That's, you know, the Red Sea, Indian Ocean, Persian Gulf, and the Atlantic Ocean. So uh, Blue Homeland represents uh, the strategy that Turkey is taking in the Eastern Mediterranean. So is what going on with Turkey there, is that a signal more of saying, Turkey saying, hey, this is what our strategy is. Uh, We're going to be a little more aggressive and we're going to protect what we think is ours. Or is this maybe just about energy rights? and? Turkey wants to just start drilling in the Eastern Mediterranean, or maybe it's a combination of both. What do you think about that, Suha? So uh, it's a combination of both, uh, but I think uh, it's more about geopolitics than energy. It's uh, more about, uh, and less about energy rights, but more about sovereignty, freedom of navigation, uh, national pride and honor, and of course, geopolitical influence as well. Because uh, if you look at, you know, the energy potential in the region, it's not that much. It's not, you know, uh, there's some misperception about it. There's not that uh, great to affect or, you know, swing markets in any particular direction, really. Um, These reserves uh, that to date have been confirmed deposits, they amount to only 5% of the global uh, recovery amount, unable to swing markets in any direction let's say, compared to 30% in the Arctic region. So the Arctic has a much, much larger, six times more potential than the East Med. But the East Med uh, is important because it sits at, at the core of many intractable conflicts and geopolitical factions or frictions around uh, the world's you know, center of gravity. If we may even call it, you know, since World War II, uh, the world center of gravity and power moved to the Atlantic and the U.S. And there is this ongoing debate whether the um, direction is now reversed and that it's moving back to sort of uh, Near East and then North of Far East and Asia Pacific. 
So in that regard, the, the Eastern Mediterranean sits at the crossroads of uh, competing powers, different push and pull relationships between, on one hand, the uh, NATO Euro-Atlantic alliance, and on the other hand, uh, the Eurasian, the rising Eurasian powers, and of course the Middle East uh, that's buffered in between the two. So that gives a different geopolitical spin. Uh, so all in all, the bottom line, energy is much less of, uh, I think, a factor in uh, determining the, the heightened importance of uh, the region than uh, geopolitics. Yeah, I think that is so interesting that you mentioned that, Suha, just because, I mean, Turkey has a long memory of being blocked in by European powers as well, obviously during sieges in the early 20th century. And so it does make a lot of sense that Turkey has been very keen to increase its strategic position in recent years, particularly given uh, Turkey's desire to, you know, distance itself from the Syrian war on its border. So that makes a lot of sense. And I think that the additional aspect of, you know, gaining a large strategic security advantage and even possibly becoming energy dependent just adds to plenty of the reasons why Blue Homeland makes a lot of sense for Turkey at this time. Moving forward, particularly in how Blue Homeland impacts the U.S.-Turkey relationship, obviously U.S. Secretary of State Pompeo visited Greece and Turkey last month. How would you, Suha, say that that has made an impact, if any, and what message to Turkey does that send from the U.S.? You know, it's a big public secret that, you know, U.S.-Turkey relations have been strained for some time, especially since the failed coup attempt in 2016. And there is a sense of, uh, you know, uh, inability to, to to mend these relationships back into the old, good old days when, you know, especially in the 90s or the, at the turn of the century when two countries were really close allies and were aligned in many of the policy decisions around the region. Uh, that seems to be a bit far-fetched for the time being, simply because um, you know Turkey, uh, I think, has reoriented its foreign policy in a way to um, be a more independent and be more active, uh, even more militarized in its pursuit uh, for um, perhaps regional control or some even call it hegemony. I don't know if that's the right word, but I, I, I would refrain from using it maybe to maximize its security in the new context. So uh, given Turkey's new positioning, uh, I think U.S.-Turkey, you know, interests still overlap, still uh, they have some shared interests and common goals, but they do also come to friction or uh, collision at, uh, you know, certain uh, points or regions, uh, you know, in in the periphery. So one of these is obviously the Eastern Mediterranean, the other is Syria, as you mentioned, uh, another could be uh, possibly Black Sea or the Caucasus, but there are areas of uh, you know cooperation and obviously shared interests as well. Um, so as a NATO member, um, NATO, Turkey, Greece, and US are all NATO members. So one would suppose that you know there would be a common security framework to align their threat perception and activities in terms of uh, you know military maneuvers their grand strategy of, you know, alignments and so on. But that has become looser in, in the recent years. And Turkey believes that Greece uh, uses the the context, the opportunity that it's in the EU, it's uh, a member of the uh, Euro-Atlantic bloc, that uh, it's befriended by, you know, many uh, prominent figures in Western politics and media, 
uh, to take a bolder stance against Turkey and make maximalist claims uh, around maritime zones, airspace, and other territorial rights. And Turkey adopts a defensive policy against uh, Greece's search for a greater control in the region. Um, so uh, when you look at uh, Secretary of State Pompeo's recent visit, uh, for one, uh, Secretary Pompeo visited Greece on an official visit to the government. So he paid a visit to military bases, to met with government officials, uh, has inaugurated uh, you know, expansion plans, some new constructions in U.S. bases around the country, in, in Crete and elsewhere. Uh, U.S.'s largest naval base in the Mediterranean, just to mention, is in Crete, in Greece. Um, and there were even uh, you know, rumors of whether Injirlik base in Turkey would be dismantled and relocated to Crete, uh, which was promptly denied by the State Department. But even there were you know, some uh, rumors around that. So for one, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo paid an official visit to the Greek government, whereas his, his visit to Turkey was of a very different sort. He only met with the Greek ecumenical patriarch, um, or the local Greek Orthodox patriarch in Turkey, Bartholomeos, and hasn't even met you know, with any single Turkish official. He hasn't even visited Ankara, the capital. So he just landed in Istanbul, visited the patriarch and the mosque uh, on a kind of like a, a sightseeing tour and then left. So that was uh, a very different kind of visit, as if a non-visit, even one not called, you know, it's kind of like a protest. Um, so I think uh, the U.S. administration stands towards Turkish-Greek matters as substantially changed in recent years, far away from the kind of sort of balanced approach that it used to follow in much of the past 40, 50 years. Yeah, Suha, I'm, re- I'm glad you bring that up. Um, you're, you're absolutely right when you say uh, that the Turkish relationship has changed with the United States, especially over the last 20 years. You know, it's certainly not the same as it was maybe, say, in the 90s, because today we have you know, maybe we still have some similar interests, but the U.S. and, the, and Turkey have much more to disagree about today than they did 20 years ago. And President Erdogan has invested a lot into his relationship with President Trump over the past four years. You know, they're known to uh, be cordial over the phone and, and talk somewhat frequently. Uh, how is Turkey's relationship going to change under a Biden administration, um, you know, now that uh, President Erdogan's, you know, phone pal, as some people like to say, President Trump, won't be in the White House anymore. How is that relationship going to change uh, between the two countries? That's a really good question, actually. And many people in Turkish media and thought circles uh, also contemplate about this um, this question and seek for an answer to it. Uh, it's, I think, a bit too early to tell uh, from just the point we stand in, uh, simply because uh, President-elect uh, Joe Biden hasn't taken the position and his first three months, 90 days, will be crucial to watch for, you know, to see what impact he will uh, bear on Turkish US or any relationship you know with the US has with the with the wider world so um you know the question could be whether Biden will have you know enough time and you know uh, bandwidth to to look at really Turkey under a different lens maybe he will focus solely on US internal matters starting firstly with you know the covid-19 and economic crisis there and uh, other pending pressing issues around the Asia-Pacific uh, trade partnerships and uh, relations with the EU. Um, so Turkey, is it really going to uh, take a big chunk of his agenda in foreign policy? I'm not so sure. Um, with 
with President Trump, uh, Erdogan had a personal uh, clique, right? So, I mean, they they had this special kind of uh, contact where one could pick up the phone and directly call the other and uh, discuss matters and maybe solve them through this uh, close personal relationship. Um, one could one thing we could say is, you know, that will certainly not be the case on the Biden administration. I mean, Biden and Trump have, uh, sorry, Biden and President Erdogan um, do not have this kind of uh, bond. Um, and what we understand from Biden's statements prior to elections is that he um, uh, he seems to favor a lot more sort of uh, a liberal international approach to problem solving rather than Trump's more uh, sort of uh, impulsive uh, approach, right? So Biden represents um, interests pretty much of the neoliberal global system. Uh, so he's going to take a more institutionalist approach and try to bring in the relevance of rules and norms and uh, global institutions much more to to, for, to forbear than than Trump used to do. So we'll we can expect Biden to re-enter the Paris Climate Agreement uh, and expect you know its allies and friends to adopt similar measures for climate change uh, to to combat climate change or to, you know in terms of energy policy to realign their priorities. So this may have in the in the in the midterm some implications on Turkey because EastMed gas coming back to our topic on energy geopolitics, uh, EastMed uh, gas um, uh, is seen very much as a, a source of input for EU for the European Union's consumption, but EU has adopted this green um, green plan the the zero uh, zero carbon future uh, to achieve zero emissions by. 2050. So there is no market in the EU for this type of uh, offshore gas, and so and given the stalemate uh, on the field, there is no potential for entry into Turkey as well um, for this gas. So uh, energy geopolitics uh, is going to be more geopolitics than energy in in the in the midterm, I would say. Uh, so expect uh, probably more pressure on uh, not just Turkey but in the region to. Uh, you know, kind of realign their <clears throat> behavior in a more um, sort of um, a more a- allied sense of behavior. So there will be uh, less tolerance, I think, to um, uh, you know unilateral moves, but more emphasis on collective security and collective action um, and sort of the norms and uh, rules around. Um, you know, security. So uh, uh, long explanation short, uh, under Biden administration, um, yes, there will be uh, maybe some uh, realignment uh, between US and Turkish leadership uh, in terms of their priorities. But whether these will be long-term, you know, effects, whether Turkey will uh, or can even reset its relationship with the U.S. Uh, depends. It depends on much as much as on Turkey as on the U.S. So we'll have to see the first ninety days of Biden administration, and then we'll have a clearer picture of the future. Thank you so much, Suha, for that. And now turning a little bit more international, uh, aside from the U.S. Um, let's take a look at Turkey's behavior in the Eastern Med and how that really ties into its engagements in Nagorno-Karabakh, Syria, and Libya. 
Do you think that we should really expect a more aggressive foreign policy to continue next year? Do you think that continues to depend on how Turkey interacts with the U.S. and its desire for EU ascension? What do you think that's going to look like? Turkey is never short of uh, crisis around its periphery, right? So it's been involved in these different um, conflicts and uh, uh, war zones of uh, confrontation in Libya and Syria, Nagorno-Karabakh, the latest, uh, not to mention anything of Cyprus, Aegean, uh, and the ongoing sort of Cold War between Greece and Turkey. Now, how uh, will Turkey's behavior uh, shape in the new era? Um, how that ties into the Mid Eastern Mediterranean. So, I think the East Med is we, we shouldn't treat it as a separate uh, theater from the rest. So these are all uh, connected to one another. So Syria, Cyprus, East Med, and Libya. I, I think one front. That's the view I think in Ankara to look at these different uh, types of engagements that Turkey has militarily intervened in uh, relationships with Russia and other Eurasian countries such as Azerbaijan or Ukraine or Central Asia. Uh, perhaps China also will, I, I think, implicate uh, Turkey's uh, trajectory, its uh, orientation in the coming term. You know, Turkey's maritime policy is centered around, as we said at the beginning of the conversation, on the Blue Homeland Doctrine to secure and guard its uh, maritime interests, firstly around its immediate periphery then in the waters approaching the region in uh, in the wider uh, maritime space. So these different confrontational uh, spots in Libya, Syria, Cyprus, and Nagorno-Karabakh, their future will depend on Turkey's stands with vis-a-vis US and Russia, I think, most importantly, because Turkey has been threading this fine line of balance between these two, two powers. Um, as you know, Turkey purchased S-400 weapon systems, which the U.S. has uh, heavily protested and threatened with sanctions. But Turkey is still a NATO member. Um, it's the second largest army in NATO. So uh, Turkey's uh, behavior in these fronts uh, will depend on how strategic its partnership with Russia is going to become. Yeah, so Turkey uh, is a, a, a U.S. ally within NATO, but we should also, I think, accept the fact that Turkey is not a strategic ally for the U.S., right? So it's not like U.K., it's not like Israel. Turkey is a NATO ally, uh, but uh, in the aftermath of especially the second Gulf War, I think Turkey's geopolitical importance for the U.S. has gradually declined. It's not at the same level as it used to be, especially during the Cold War period. So given that uh, Turkey is on the outlook for new partnerships to secure its backyard, its periphery, to sort of alleviate its threat perception in the region, I would say. And that's partly why I think uh, it approached Russia for the purchase of S-400 systems um, given the fact that it couldn't buy those air, any, any air defense system from a NATO member um, due to the sanctions and um, um, decline of you know uh, proposals at Senate or in other countries' assemblies. So Turkey's behavior will depend on its relations with uh, big powers such as the U.S., Russia, and perhaps even more importantly, China in the, in the mid to long term. 
It's interesting to hear you say that Turkey's aligned with the United States by a treaty, but not necessarily by strategy. Um, you know, Turkey was one of the first 15 members of NATO back in, in the early days, and now we're seeing a departure from, from that strategy alignment. Um, and given that you also said that uh, incoming President Biden is, uh, you know, a, a liberal institutionalist um, in his foreign policy, what problems does that pose for NATO, given that Turkey is taking more of an indignant foreign policy and, and kind of making their own path uh, with their engagements? What problems does that form for the institution of NATO? Great question. Firstly, I mean, NATO uh, was born out of uh, necessary, you know, necessity to contain Soviet Union in the aftermath of the Second World War. So it, it's a Cold War uh, organization, firstly. And it has evolved and, you know, readapted and tried to make it more itself more relevant to emerging realities of the, you know, the post-Cold War era or uh, 21st century's new era of, uh, you know, non-state actors, cyber warfare, uh, different threat vectors emerging uh, out of everywhere. Um, and the declining relevance of Russia uh, relative to China's rise in the Asia-Pacific. So NATO is, I think, also thinking through its new mission, what it, what it should be, what its mission should be in the new era. So Turkey, uh, Turkey's behavior, its foreign policy within NATO is not abstract from this process of thinking. So we, we hear, we see different viewpoints in Turkey about whether Russia is really uh, the arch enemy that it used to be during the Cold War era for Turkey, or whether Turkey shares or could have more common interests with a resurgent Russia than it used to have or that uh, it thought it had. So these are some of the questions that I think you know, uh, the decision-making polity in Ankara is considering. Of course, especially President-elect Biden, uh, you know, reiterated that Russia he considers as United States, uh, you know, the biggest foreign threat rather than China. I think he has a more uh, positive, lenient approach towards China than Trump. A more uh, sort of, as, as we said, uh, a coalitional approach through international loans and institutions rather than hard power per se. Uh, but on Russia, he, he has a much more firm stance. So in that respect, Turkey's developing partnership with Russia will not stand well with the Biden administration, I think. And that might have some repercussions. Um, I mean, just to give a simple example, you know, to um, you know, needed, needless to explain, actually, that, you know, in the S-400 case, there is the cuts of sanctions on president's table, that he will uh, pick a subset from and uh, possibly uh, put in action uh, when he when he comes uh, when he takes up the position next year. So that um, is a, still a big question mark. Uh, you know what effect, what impact that will have on bilateral relations. So uh, all in all, you know Turkey's interests are diverging. Uh, at one point it saw its interests, it had its face, you know, towards the Western alliance and it was um, a, a genuine EU member country trying to adopt measures and become part of it uh, to be bound by Western norms and rules. But I think that logic uh, has changed and is uh, even prone to 
you know, for move further away from that sphere of influence, uh, depending on, uh, you know, the the Biden administrations and the EU's uh, foreign policy maneuvers in the uh, in the coming months. The only thing I would add would be uh, that you know we live in a uh, in a you know in, we as in Turkey. So because I'm based here in Istanbul, when I say we, uh, I mean geographically speaking uh, here Turkey. So this is um, the, uh, probably one of the most conflict-prone regions in the world, if not the most. Um, and Turkey's importance is going to uh, uh, you know be relevant. In the coming period, no matter what, uh, whether uh, you know it leans east, west, or somewhere in the center, and uh, it's going to continue to have uh, paramount uh, importance for uh, the region's stability. But one thing for sure is um, whether a hot conflict, uh, an armed conflict in around you know Turkey uh, involving Turkey's armed forces is a possibility. I would say not probably. Uh, no, that's out of question, uh, especially with its NATO allies like Greece. Um, so that would, uh, because that would have a huge implication and probably mark the end of NATO. And nobody, uh, I guess, uh, as you know, in in his savings would want that. And so, you know, tensions may rise and fall, but uh, they will they will continue to uh, uh, be one way or the other relevant for all parties. And I think. Turkey is going to be still an important country for the region. Well, Suha, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you uh, being on the show and giving us your perspective. So thank you for being here. For all our listeners, Megan and I will be doing a follow-up episode to this topic, just discussing further the situation in the Eastern Mediterranean and maybe giving a little prehistory lesson and discussing what the current actions are now and possible steps moving forward. So thank you everyone so much for joining us for this episode and a big, big thank you to Suha for your time. Sure, thank you for having me. We absolutely enjoyed talking to you and everybody, see you next time.